Father, we pray that you would use your word to make us people who have fixed our hope completely on the glory to be revealed when the Lord Jesus comes and the final and full salvation that will be realized on that day. And Lord, we pray that you would keep us from looking to people or governments or institutions or, or anything in this world to do for us what only you can do for us. Lord, keep us from finding our hope in something else. Help us, Lord, to be those who know you, who walk with you, and who are able to help others do so. And so we ask that you would meet us and that you would satisfy us as only you can. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I would invite you to open your Bible this morning to Psalm 62, and we'll be looking together at Psalms 62 and 63. And as you turn there, I would ask what what you're looking for, what you're waiting on, what you're hoping for. And we all all do this. It all happens. Uh, In in the middle of a long uh, year, we may be waiting for our circumstances to change. If we're in school, we may be waiting to graduate or hoping to graduate. If we're Single, we may be hoping for a spouse. If we're uh, dealing with a, a situation at work, we may be hoping that somebody's going to move away. There's, there, there's always something. There's another, there's another finish line that we're hoping to cross. There's another um, set of circumstances that we're hoping to see altered in some way. And Psalm 62 is in the Bible to say to us that whatever it is we're looking for, We must be careful that our expectation not be too small, that our expectation, our hope, and what we're waiting for not be something other than the Lord himself. So after this superscription here in Psalm 62, which reads to the choir master, according to Jaduthin, a psalm of David, David writes, and and we're in the midst of a a series of psalms where he's still dealing with various kinds of of difficulties. Um, If you look at the superscription of Psalm 63, it's when he was in the wilderness of Judah. So maybe at this point, we're to to think in terms of David looking forward to the day when he's not going to be chased around through the wilderness, looking forward to the day when Saul will no longer be trying to kill him. But look at what he says here in Psalm 62, verse 1. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. I think this tells us that David knows that what he needs is not for his circumstances to change. What he needs is not to be delivered ultimately and finally from Saul. What he needs is not to be reinstated in Jerusalem and delivered from the wilderness. What he needs is God. So he says in the rest of verse 1 there, from him comes my salvation. And so I would ask you, when you think of deliverance or salvation, what do you think of? When you think of arrival, what do you think of? Is is your mind ultimately and completely fixed on the new heavens and the new earth 
when all things are going to be made new, when Christ has returned, and when all our hopes are realized, or is your expectation smaller than that? Unduly limited. David says here in verse 2 of the Lord, He alone is my rock. So a rock is uh, something, again, as we, as we saw in Psalm 60, 60 and 61, where David was speaking of the Lord this way, 61 verse 2, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. A rock is a place that you want to go to because it can protect you from your enemies, whether because you're behind it or because you're on top of it for some reason. And again, the Lord is, uh, David is saying of the Lord, he alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. And because these things are so, he says, I shall not be greatly shaken. David is confident that he is not going to be overcome because he's confident in the Lord, his salvation. Now, verses 1 and 2 are going to be repeated almost word for word in verses 5 and 6. But before we get there to the repetition, there's a kind of application of these realities in verses 3 and 4. So David is saying, I'm waiting on God. God is my security. God is my salvation. And now it's, it's like he addresses those enemies that we've been thinking about since Psalm 2, here in verse 3. Um, those people in Psalm 2 who are gathering together against the Lord and against his anointed. And I think we can, we can sort of translate who those enemies are into our culture. It doesn't it doesn't take much imagination to look into the culture and see people who are trying to bring about the kingdom of God without reference to God himself. There, there are people who are trying to establish the new heaven and new earth, but they don't want Jesus to be king over it. They think that they'll get to administrate it. They think that they can bring about ultimate and final justice. They think that they can renew the lands. They can accomplish this, and they have no thought for the creator and no thought for the redeemer. And David says, of the, to these kinds of people who are trying to establish some other kingdom than the kingdom of God in his day, he says in verse 3, how long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Now, why, why, why are they attacking David? Well, because David is the leader of the kingdom of God. And if they're going to establish their kingdom, they can't have the kingdom of God in the way. It's going to require Saul being at the helm or, or whoever else, Absalom maybe, but they can't have David. So they're, they're attacking David, and then, and then he says, how long will all of you attack a man to batter him? I actually, I don't think that's the best rendering of, of um, this phrase uh, in, in the Hebrew text, and um, I, I would suggest that you could render this phrase to batter him as an assertion that David is making to his enemies, where, where he's saying to them, you will all be shattered. You, he's, I think David is saying to his enemies, those who are opposed to the kingdom of God, you are all going to get it. You are all seed of the serpent, and you're going to have your heads crushed. You will all be shattered. And then he goes on to talk about what they're going to be shattered like, like a leaning wall or a tottering fence. In other words, you know, if you build the wall too long, you don't have enough material, and it's stretched out too far, and it's weakened, and David is saying, in the way that an army is going to come bashing through that wall because it's not sufficiently reinforced, that's the way that you're going to go down before the power of God. 
So I think this is a warning to, to David's enemies. And then he begins to reflect on them there in verse 4, where he says, they only plan to thrust him down from his high position. So I think he's, he's speaking of uh, God's king, um, and he knows, he knows on the basis of God's promises to him that, that while he's going to be installed, eventually uh, the, the, the descendant promised to him is going to be dis- uh, installed as God's king. And these enemies of God are planning to thrust down God's king from his high possession, position. And so he continues to describe them there in verse 4. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. So here again, the, these are people that, that to David's face, in his presence, they're, 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 they're acting like they're on board with what he's doing. But in, inwardly, among themselves, when you get at what they really think, they're cursing David. They're cursing God, and they want nothing to do with God's king. And in the midst of, of these kinds of adversaries, David is saying in verse 1, For God alone my soul waits in silence. I'm going to wait on God to deal with these adversaries. And then he repeats it again in verse 5. But this time, instead of it being an assertion, it's a command to himself. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. And, And again, I think it's so encouraging that David has to talk to himself this way. I'm sure that you have experienced a, a, a place of spiritual peace. You've, you've met with the Lord. You've spent time in his word. You feel good about things. And then it, you go away, and immediately you're thrown into turmoil. And, and so David, it's like he's trying to get himself back to that place of spiritual peace. He, he's gotten there. For God alone, oh, my soul waits in silence. And then he has to command himself back to there. For God alone, O oh my soul, wait in silence. And he's reiterating for himself these truths. My hope is from him. And he repeats it again. He repeats verse 2 again in verse 6. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. Now this time, instead of addressing the enemies, what he's going to do is, is address allies. And, and so in verses 7 and 8, it's like he declares for everybody aligned with him, on God rests my salvation. Uh, this is reminiscent, I think, of the way that on those various occasions when David had the opportunity to kill Saul and, and one of David's men would say to him, David, let me go over and strike him down. And David's answer on those occasions was no. No, I will not lift my hand against the Lord's anointed. If it's the Lord's good pleasure, he will strike Saul down. That's what David's saying here. On God rests my salvation and my glory. There are occasions when it is appropriate for us to say, I don't like these circumstances. I don't like this situation, but I am not going to do what needs to be done. I am going to leave this in God's hands. Just yesterday, I was, I was talking with a friend of mine, and, and um, he's dealing with a situation where uh, he thinks uh, there are matters of injustice. I mean, it's low-grade suffering, as he describes it. It's nothing tremendously significant. It's nothing, 
But, but it, it's things that, that really bother him. And I said, well, do you think you should go and talk to the person that's the root of this problem? And he said, no, because I don't think I could do it in a godly way. I think if I did that, if I went and had that conversation, it would only be sinful. So I'm just going to leave this in the Lord's hands. And that seems to be what, the way that David is responding here in verse 7. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. I think David's reference to his glory there is his being installed as king. And then he, he says to everybody aligned with him here in verse 8, Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. So if you've ever wondered, if David had an opportunity to speak into my life, if the king of Israel, the anointed of the Lord, inspired by the Holy Spirit, ever had an opportunity to look at me and say, this is what you need to hear. This is what he says to you. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. And next, in, in verses 9 and 10, I think what David does is he lifts up the possibility of human solutions. And essentially what he's going to say is human solutions are altogether vanity. And, and if, if, we, if we sort of, again, translate this into our context... And we think about, about what David is, is facing and what he's dealing with. What David is seeking, ultimately, is the establishment of the kingdom of God. What we are seeking, ultimately, is the establishment of the kingdom of God. And, and in David's day, there are people seeking another kingdom than the kingdom of God. And in our day, there are people seeking another kingdom than the kingdom of God. Look at what David says here in verse 9. He says... Those of low estate are but a breath. People, people who are not significant in the world, vapor. That, you, this is the word able. And the, those of, of, of low estate are like able. The word, the word able, the name able, means something like vapor. His life was over fast. He was appropriately named. And, and then it, that's the word that's also used in the, in the book of Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Uh, those of low estate, vanity. So all of us insignificant people, we're a breath. Our lives are going to be over so quickly. Then he goes on to say, those of high estate are a delusion. They're a lie. They're, they're, they, they look good, they look significant, they look powerful. It's all a delusion. It's vanity. It's, it's not lasting. It's so transitory. And then he continues here in verse 9. In the balances, they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Over. Gone. In the, in the span of time it takes to breathe. It's all gone. And so here's this application of this reality, of the vanity of human solutions. Verse 10, put no trust in extortion. You know what extortion is? Extortion is probably at the root of why some people in our culture seem to be able to break the law and suffer no consequences. They probably got the goods on different people. 
They've probably got some kind of ability to exercise influence over whether the people who are charged to uphold the law will indeed uphold the law. That's, that's extortion. Extortion is injustice. In, extortion is, is when you, you exercise your influence over people to get what you want from them, them in a way that is not righteous. It is not moral. It's a wicked kind of influence is what it is. You know, you can have a righteous kind of influence where because you love people and you help people and you're seeking the good of all people, people want to jump on board and and join you in the cause of good. And then you can have wicked forms of influence where because you can threaten people or because you can can, uh, suggest that you're going to ruin people, they do what you want them to do. That's what extortion is. And David says, put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. What's robbery? It's where you take what belongs to somebody else. And so what David is saying is the kingdom of God, this is a broader sort of implication of this, the kingdom of God is going to be established through righteous means of influence. This other kingdom is going to be established by wicked ways of gathering resources and of influencing people's choices and decisions. Don't trust that wicked way of, of, of establishing a kingdom. It's going nowhere. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Even if they look wealthy, even if they look influential, don't trust it. And then here's his, his sort of application in verses 11 and 12. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this. Power belongs to God. A kingdom is going to be established by power. And what David is saying is that power belongs to the Lord. And then he continues in verse 12, And that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. And then there's a third item here at the end of verse 12, For you will render to a man according to his work. You know what he's talking about there? He's talking about justice. Now think about the three terms that we've got there in verses 11 and 12. Power, steadfast love, and justice. That's what's going to be realized in the kingdom of God. Our culture is coming apart at the seams. We we are being fractured into all these various influences, and all these people are pursuing different forms of, of, of gaining power, gaining resources, gaining influence over other people, They want power, they they want justice, but they don't have God, and they don't know the meaning of steadfast love. They don't know the meaning of God's loving kindness. That's what's under review here. And and I think what David is saying is, these other kingdoms, they've they've got no chance of being established. It's God's kingdom that is going to bring about the realization of power and steadfast love and justice. Jeremy Pierre, as I've interacted with him on various occasions, he, he will say that often people who are, are depressed or discouraged, that what they're dealing with is a situation where their hopes are in the wrong place. They have placed their hopes 
on the realization of some desire that they have or uh, people treating them a certain way or them being regarded, having a certain status or influence or whatever, and then they don't get what they're hoping for and it just weighs them down. Things don't go the way they want things to go and as a result, their identity and their sense of satisfaction in life and their joy and their zest, it's all just sapped. And what this psalm is saying to us is, don't put your hopes in the wrong place. Put your hopes on the Lord. So two points of application from Psalm 62. Number one, we must discipline ourselves to hope in God. That's just another way of saying, take every, every thought captive to the knowledge of Christ. Take every thought captive to the knowledge of Christ. We should, when we have a, one, of these, one of these wayward musings enter into our minds, we should lay hold of it, grab it, and then hold it up to the light of Jesus and say, the pleasure, let's say, that, that this temptation is offering me Is it a pleasure that the Lord promises that I will enjoy in the new heavens and new earth? And if it's not, we need to get rid of it. That's that's what it looks like to take a thought captive to the knowledge of Christ. Is this a, a way of speaking to people that comports with Jesus and the way that he spoke to people? No, it's not. Let's get rid of it. We need to discipline ourselves to hope in God and take our thoughts captive to the knowledge of Christ. And then the second point of application is just the other side of this coin. Don't expect from humans, whether it's human government or human institutions or or anything else that you can get from people, don't expect from people what you can only get from God. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you're not really maybe interested in being a Christian, maybe some Christian just brought you here, we got bad news for you. You're never going to get what you want. You are never going to be satisfied in this life. You're just going to have to deal with that. If, if you don't want to know God, you will never know joy and satisfaction at the deepest levels. It won't work for you. God has set the world up to thwart you at every step And I would just encourage you to look at your life and see if that's not the way it is. What we want for you is the satisfaction that only God can give to you because you're you're made to know God. So we shouldn't expect from people, and we we should certainly not expect from sin what we can only get from God. I think that Psalms 62 and 63 are strategically arranged... Because in 62, David is saying, wait for God. And then in 63, it's like he's saying, here's why you should do that. And, and here's, here's like a method or, or like a, a, uh, a strategy for learning how to wait for God, how to seek God. But the strategy, really, that he's giving to us is a, an account of his own experience. And as I, as I read Psalm 63 this week... It was, it was humbling and convicting because, because Psalm 63 forces us to realize that we have not, I have not experienced God in this way like I want to. So look at what David says here, Psalm 63, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. 
which is remarkable in itself, because he's not comfortable and he's not safe. He's not at home. He's in the wilderness. He's in danger. And he says in verse 1, Oh God, you are my God. My God is not safety. My God is not comfort. My God is not anything other than you. You are my God. And then he says at the end of verse 1, and this is one of those places where words don't really do justice to the thought that's being communicated. Earnestly I seek you. You could could translate this all kinds of ways. I desire you. I long for you. It's this this thought that, that is yearning and reaching, groping for God and saying, you are what I want at the deepest part of who I am. I don't know what you're struggling with. I don't know what's got you down. Only God can satisfy you in this way. And only God should be the object of this kind of longing. If the the longing is for something that you used to have and don't enjoy anymore, whether that's somebody's presence or somebody's company or somebody's friendship, if the longing is for some job that you used to have and you don't have that job anymore, you need to make sure that this kind of longing is directed at God. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. And then listen to what he says. My soul thirsts for you. We're used to having thirst in our mouths. We know what it is to be thirsty in our mouths. And he's saying, my soul, spiritually, I am thirsty, God, for you. And then he takes that spiritual thing and he makes it physical. My flesh, my body, my corpse faints for you, the fainting that he's talking about is not the fainting that you feel when you get frightened and you fall out. No, he's saying, I am so earnestly desirous of you that I'm, I'm fainting away in my longing for you, God. If there's anything else that we long for and thirst for and faint for, whatever it is, is an idol. And if there's an idol that you're longing or thirsting or fainting for, you're an idolater. And you need to turn away from idolatry. You need to put God alone in that slot. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So he's out in the wilderness and and he's saying, okay... These are my circumstances, but spiritually, here's why I am, and what I need is God. Now, what has caused David to feel this way? Look at verse 2. That first word, I think, doesn't help us as much as it could. The ESV renders this so, but when you see a word so like this, you should think in terms of in this way or thus. So, So I think what he's saying is, Thus, or in this way, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. So here's what David is saying. David is saying, I'm longing and thirsting and fainting for you because I've experienced you. 
because I've seen you, because I was at the temple where your glory and your power was on display, and it's like nothing else that I've ever experienced. And the result of it is that what I want, God, is you. And then he goes on in verse 5, I'm sorry, verse 3, and he says, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. I don't know if you've experienced God like this. Think about what he's saying. Because your steadfast love is better than life. David's experience of God's steadfast love makes him ready to say, it's better than food, it's better than recreation, it's better than exercise, it's better than the joy of doing some work that I'm skilled at, it's better than sex, it's better than my life continuing. Your steadfast love is better than life. What would you put in that slot? Blank is better than obedience to God's commands. Blank is better than pursuing Christ's likeness. Blank is better than obeying the command to rejoice always. What do you put in that slot? If there's something other than the Lord in that slot, it's going to result in you being a wicked sinner and you're an idolater. We've got to experience God this way. Whatever it is, whatever it is that we think is better than life, that's what our lives are going to praise. Instinctively. As, as a natural reaction, whatever it is that we think is best is what we are going to celebrate and praise. Because, look at what David says here in verse 3. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. What does your life praise? I'm not, I'm not coming down on anybody here. I'm just inviting you to reflect. If somebody was to look at my life and analyze and say, what does Jim think is the best thing in the world, what would they identify? Would it be God? I mean, I hope so. I hope so. I think it could better reflect that. I want to grow in that reflection. And that's going to require more experience of God, isn't it? Because it's, it's not something that you can conjure up. It's not something that you can fake. It, it does, I think, go with... What I said from Psalm 62, disciplining ourselves to hope in God. If our hope is in God, and if we're taking every thought captive to the knowledge of Christ, then more and more what we're going to be experiencing is God's steadfast love is better than life. And so naturally, my lips are going to praise him. Verse 4, David says, so I will bless you. Again, this so in this way, thus, because I've experienced your steadfast love to be better than life, I will bless you as long as I live. Uh, You could render that line there in verse 4. I will bless you in my life, in the way that I live, in the way that I go about. I will be blessing God. In your name, he says there at the end of verse 4, in your name, I will lift up my hands. Verse 5, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. So in verse uh, 
1, his soul was thirsty. And now in verse 5, his soul is satisfied with fat and rich food. As I, as I thought about this, this verse, um, Psalm 63, 5, um, and, and, and I was trying to, to um, understand what he's talking about with fat and rich food. So what he's doing is he's taking something physical and he's, and he's sort of applying it to the spiritual, right? So physically, you're, you're satisfied with fat and rich food. And then spiritually, this is, like, this is what it's like to know God. And I was thinking, okay, what's, what, what would illustrate this? And what I thought of was um, this, this wonderful experience that I had in the summer of 2005. Uh, I, I've mentioned my friend Jonathan before. He's, he's a gourmand. He's a lover of fine foods. He's, he's my buddy who, who gave me that quote, um, any beast can feed, but only a man knows how to eat. Um, and, and um, I mean, he got that from somebody else, but, you know, this guy loves fine French cuisine. And, and in the summer of 2005, I was on a study tour with Southwestern Seminary where I was teaching at the time, and we were, we were in England, and Jonathan was on the trip, and he found, well, he found, he, part, I think part of the reason he went on the trip is because this restaurant is in London. <laughs> And so he set up for the two of us to go to this place called Petrus. You can actually Google Petrus, London, and then, and then you can Google tasting menu, and you can find, you know, the list of things that are on the tasting menu at this, at this, this it's the most fabulous restaurant. And when I say fabulous, I don't mean gaudy or anything like that. I mean, it was, it was an experience. And, and the best part of it was that Jonathan was there to narrate everything. You know, I didn't know how this food was prepared. I didn't know how... I didn't know its significance, and he's explaining everything, and he's, he's got his camera out, he's taking pictures, you know, when they bring the dishes out, and he's jotting things down in his journal. It was a great experience. He was the, he's the best kind of person to go to a restaurant like that with, because he can tell you what, what's gone into all of this, and I mean, it was course after course, and everything was so perfectly balanced, and the food was, it was amazing, and they brought... You know, they, small portions, but just course after course after course, and everything is perfectly matched, and it's just wonderful. I mean, astonishing. Um, if you do Google it, if you, if you do find the tasting menu, you might be, you know, sort of a sticker shock feeling. John, he wouldn't, he wouldn't, I, I had no access to how much this meal cost. I know now because I did just Google this yesterday. <laughs> but he wouldn't, he wouldn't, he didn't let me in on how much this cost, so I didn't know. Um... It was expensive, <laughs> but it was worth it. I mean, I, mean I, I probably wouldn't spend money that way, but it was worth it. That's what I think of when I, when I look at Psalm 63, verse 5. My soul will be satisfied as with the finest dining experience possible. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food by the Lord and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Those photographs and the jotting in the notebook, all of that was a natural response to indulging in that experience. This is how we respond if we experience God. And then I think verse 6 is also just naturally flowing out of the experience of the Lord. He says, When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you, in the watches of the night. This is not a command. He's not saying, this is what you need to do. He's not saying, try harder at this. No, he's saying, I'm going to be satisfied, verse 5, when I do this. 
He has experienced this. He's indulged. He's tasted it. And he's saying, this is the result of knowing God. Look at, look at the, the object of what, or the, the content that is meditated on in there, there in verse 6. When I remember you on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. David is contemplating the person of God himself. How is he able to do that? Because God has revealed himself. Where has God revealed himself? Well, general and special revelation, right? In creation and in scripture. So, do you want this experience of God? If the answer to that question is yes, and then if you ask, how do I experience God this way? Look at him. Where do I look? In the Bible. That's where you look. And the Bible then trains you how to look at the general revelation in creation. My soul will be satisfied. My mouth will praise when I remember you and meditate on you. I know, I mean, I, I, people have trouble sleeping all the time. My kids have trouble sleeping. I have trouble sleeping. Look at what David is doing in the middle of the night when he's on his bed in the watches. He's meditating on the Lord and remembering the Lord. Why is he doing that? Look at verse 7. For you have been my help. This, this goes back to, to David remembering all that God has done for him, contemplating it, thinking it, thinking on it, and then responding to the Lord. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. It, it's a, I, 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 don't, this, I may be weird, but I love to sleep in a sleeping bag from time to time. I don't like to sleep on the hard ground, but I love to sleep in the sleeping bag because what I'll do is I'll sort of bunch myself up, you know, I'll get the, get the ends of it all tucked up under my feet, and I'll get it really tightly wrapped around me, and I just feel so safe in a sleeping bag that way. I, I'm, okay, I'm strange, fine, whatever. <laughs> I think that feeling of safety and, and security in that cocoon-like uh, sleeping bag is something like what David is saying here. In the shadow of your wings, that's where I'm secure. That's where I'm safe. In the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. And then verse 8 is beautiful. He says, my soul clings to you. I wish they would translate it, my soul cleaves to you, because this is the word used in Genesis 2, when it says, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife. This is, this is the word used in Deuteronomy chapter 10, when Moses says to Israel, you shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him, and then the ESV renders it, and hold fast to him, you shall cleave to him, and by his name you shall swear. My soul cleaves to you. It's that marriage imagery. And your right hand upholds me. This is an intimate and profound experience of, of what it is to walk with God. There's nobody like the Lord. You know, if you're, if you're not a Christian and, and you're bothered by Christians always trying to get you to become a Christian, it's because we want you to know God like this. It's because we want you to be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus who has paid the penalty for all your sin and conquered death and made it so that you can have this kind of relationship with God the Father if you'll turn from sin and trust in Jesus. If you don't, you're going to be among the people 
that David talks about in verse 9. Those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. What are those people trying to destroy David's life trying to do? Establish an alternative kingdom other than the kingdom of God. And David is saying, they're going to be shattered. You shall go down into the depths of the earth. They're going to go to hell. They shall be, verse 10, a portion for jackals. And then look at verse 11. David speaks in the third person. But the king, I think he's talking not only of himself here, but of the king that God is going to raise up from his line. Jesus shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult. This is, this is again, reminiscent of that statement in Deuteronomy chapter 10. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and cleave to him. And by his name you shall swear. All who swear by the king shall exult. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. Anybody who who doesn't speak God's truth, anybody who doesn't sing God's praise, their mouths are going to be stopped. The enemies will be defeated, and King Jesus will be rejoicing. So three points of application in response to Psalm 63. Number one, know God. You're made for it. How? Again, he's revealed himself in the Bible. Look at him. Read the scriptures. Look at the Lord. Experience him. Here's a sort of um, subsidiary of this first point of knowing God. Don't, Don't dull your taste for God through sin, through the false satisfaction of sin. That, that, uh, that day we went to Petrus, Jonathan said to me about, at breakfast, he's like, don't, uh, don't eat much today, you know, cultivate your hunger. We want to go to this place hungry and ready to eat. Don't, don't eat bad food when the best awaits you. If you eat the bad food, you won't be hungry for the best. That's the way it works. If you indulge yourself in sin, your thirst for God is lessened, maybe even gone. Cultivate an appetite for God through obedience. You will thirst for God. You will long for God. Your flesh will faint for God if you refuse to seek alternative means of delight, Satisfaction, security. Okay, so number one, know God. Number two, cleave yourself to God. Think of that marital imagery. A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Cleave yourself to God. Really, that's if you're a Christian, that's what you've already done by being baptized as a sign of your union with Christ. And by partaking of the Lord's Supper, we are cleaving ourselves to God. That's what we're doing. So I'm not suggesting that you, you try to go outside what normally happens here at Kenwood. I think that the best way to know God is in the life, the normal, everyday, ordinary life of a local church, where the Bible is preached and where the Lord is praised. So avail yourself of what's, of what's on offer here And that brings me to that third point of application. 
Jill and I this week had lots of conversations about mentoring and and um, and and you know we're we're discussing how to try to ensure that it's happening and try to satisfy the desire for it and so forth. And um, what, what, what kept coming back to me was the fact that the people that have mentored me are, are the people who, who that I, people that I lived with, people that I lived with that knew God. And, and they didn't necessarily go out of their way to go through some curriculum. They just walked with God with me. And so here's, I mean, this may seem like a strange application, but if we want to cultivate mentoring, what we need to do is we need to know God because ultimately mentoring comes from people, people who are mentors. How do I get to be a mentor? Know God. Know God and love people. Know God and love people. And then in the ordinary life of the church, pay attention. Watch for signals that somebody is suffering. Uh, listen in small group and give yourself to other people and, and, and walk with them. Know God, love others, pay attention, give yourself away. If we do that, the church really will be God's program for discipleship. And we really will find that mentoring is happening all over the place, even if there aren't these scheduled coordinated meetings that, that people may be substitute for the real thing. Now, I'm not trying to say, you know, let's not meet with each other. Let's, I'm not trying to do any of that. I'm just saying what we need are people that know God. That's what we need. We need people to know God and then love others. And if you're here and you're an unbeliever, we would love for you to join us in this. We would love for you to join us in experiencing this soul-deep satisfaction as with fat and rich food that results in praise for the one who is worthy. Let's pray. Father, we owe you everything. We have nothing but what we have received, and you have given us everything that we can handle of all of your goodness. So, Lord, we pray for your help. We pray that you would make us people who really do experience you, people who really do walk with you, people whose, whose sight of God, people whose experience of your power and steadfast love and justice results in us singing your praise and loving others. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.